This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High Performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm, craziness, craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down, to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency on Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency on Demand, and this is your host, Monique. All right, welcome back to another episode of Efficiency on Demand. Today, I have really cool guests on the show. I'm super excited. And we're going to share a lot of really helpful tips, I'm quite sure, especially for the time that we are in right now. And maybe we should call Mr. Trump and let him know about our tips as well. I could sense that these are pretty helpful as well for him. So go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say that the one thing that I've learned in all my 40 years of practice and in doing this work is it it does not work with narcissists. It does oh. not work with maladaptive or overt maladaptive narcissists. And Mr. Trump is an overt maladaptive narcissist. I don't think this would work on him. Oh, that's, that's the only shame. personality type. That, it is the only personality type that I know of where my skills will not work. Oh, shame. Well, now that we talked about this already, welcome to the show, Doug Noll. Thank you so much for having time, especially after this long day of full body workouts already. Oh, yeah, and violin playing and all this stuff. <laughs> I have a good time. I can tell you have a good time. I have a good time, too. So yeah. we'll have fun. I love we'll it. Fun. Well, thanks for taking the time. And so, sure. okay. narcissists. So, while, you know, I don't have a structure and we are just diving in, before we actually talk about all of the peacemaking, let's talk about narcissists. How do we know okay. that a person's actually a narcissist? Because I feel like a lot of people just throw it around and throw right. it at people. It's important. It's it, this is you're right. A lot of people throw the term around. Oh, he's a narcissist, or oh, she's a narcissist, and they don't have a clue. We all are narcissists. We can't be healthy without a certain amount of narcissism, and that's just built into how our brains are hardwired. And it, and, and so to say that you're a narcissist is that's not a pejorative. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But there is a type of narcissist that is that, and that's the overt, maladaptive narcissist. And this is a person who has been deeply emotionally wounded as a child, probably went through trauma, abuse, all different kinds of stuff. And, and the, that person's brain developed in a certain pathway that leads them into what we call this over-maladaptive narcissism. And what that is, is they are, they, 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 everything is about them. They have an extremely fragile ego, so they can never be wrong. They have very narrow identities. So any kind of identity challenge will set them off. And they are they extremely manipulative and typically very dishonest and typically do not follow rules. And in fact, when you, as a 
peacemaker and a mediator, when I've, on the rare occasions I've had to work with one of these people, I've learned that it's very difficult to negotiate with them hmm. because they're, they, they're very passive aggressive and they're dishonest. They'll say yes, and then they won't do what they say. So the only way that you can really manage somebody with this kind of pathology, personality pathology, is to set very sharp boundaries with very dire consequences. And if you're in a if you if you're in a relationship, that the typical people that get in a relationship with narcissists are empaths. These are also people who, in, not in all cases, but in 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 some cases, have been had childhood trauma. Yeah. And so they adapt to their trauma, or there are other things that cause this empathic sensitivity by being hypersensitive to other people's feelings and emotions. And so it's like narcissists and, and some types of empaths come from the same problem, childhood trauma, and they are opposites, and yet they attract like opposites, and their relationships are usually awful. They're both, the narcissist isn't miserable, but the empath is typically miserable, because the empath is giving, 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 trying to fix, trying to solve, and, and it gets nothing back, nothing back from the narcissist. So that's that's the pattern, the typical pattern that we see, and the, if if... How do you know you're with a narcissist? You're gonna. It's somebody who, who does not care at all about who you are or what you are. Does not care about your feelings. Is only interested in themselves. Is extremely protective about their identity and how they look and face saving and stuff like that. Become angry very easily at anything that threatens their identity or their ego, uh, and the whole world just circulates around them. And, and and are fundamentally dishonest. They cannot commit to anything that unless it serves their purpose. And so selflessness is not part of their makeup. If you start to watch for this, you'll see it. And then my advice is run, get out of the relationship and get away. Yeah. Because it's going to cause you nothing but heartache, especially yeah. for women with male narcissists. Mm-hmm. It's super interesting because um, when we identify these type of personality types, I want to say. That's, that's then, correct. Right. Then it's very interesting because we can we can see it from the outside and we probably everyone who listens now has a list of people in their minds like, oh, okay, yeah, I know this one, two, three of these people. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's not as common as everybody thinks it is. So, right. and, and again, narcissism, like any other personality trait, is on a continuum, right? So you can right. go from spectrum, right? not too narcissistic to extremely narcissistic. So it's a spectrum. Yeah. And yeah. so we just have to be careful how we label people. Exactly. But then we're seeing it from the outside. But once we're entangled with someone like that, we're, we somehow become blinded and manipulated yes. by like, No, 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 that's not what they're doing. And our friends are like, right. um, maybe you want to open your eyes, see what right. they're doing. No, 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 no. And we become somehow defensive or we're trying to make things better for them. That's right. Mm -hmm. You Why got it. Sounds like you've been there. You've been oh, there. I, yeah, you better bet. I had this shit show in my <laughs> Sounds life. Sounds like it. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right, Monique. That is exactly what's going on. And it's very, very difficult to extract yourself from this kind of a relationship because for the reasons you just described, it's very difficult to one, recognize it. And then two, the relationship breakup is is really hard because there's a certain feedback that 
occurs. A narcissist is giving something to the other person. And it can go either way. You know, you're going to have a female or a male narcissist. And, and, and so it becomes a very codependent, maladaptive, dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. I think uh, it's very interesting because uh, that we're talking about this today because I'm looking at the date. I'm like, oh, okay. I recognize like today, around today, like November, I think it was like 10s or 12s or something exactly five years ago was the day I got out of my manipulative, abusive um, relationship um, that really just broke me into a million pieces. And it's really interesting because the only thing that I believe got me out of it was my, the wanderlust that was bigger than me wanting to be in a place somewhere and traveling so has saved my life so often. So I think, yeah. You just, your wanderlust was what got you out of it because yeah. your partner didn't want to travel and you said, I've got itchy feet and I got to go. Yeah, it was a different, it was a few different things. Uh, by this time I lived in Australia and he was an Australian citizen, but then he wanted to move to New York for a different job. And I mean, I'm not, I don't have roots really anywhere. So I was just on a go. Also my visa was up, which was a really good thing. Um, in that case, I could have gotten another one, but something told me like I shouldn't try. And so I just, you know, I got out and that's when I went to Latin America. And actually that was four years ago. What did, what year is it? Anyways, it doesn't really matter. Four years ago. <laughs> and because I was physically distanced, he didn't have the, I think that like the power of his manipulation just lost the strengths kind of, you know, and then, and then he lost his influence on me. And then, yeah, I mean, he decided, I think that was also a good part. He decided to go back and forth on breaking up. And then with like the 10th time or whatever, I said, like, can we make a decision? Maybe it's better. We just let it be. Cause it was like too draining traveling the world and being in countries. I didn't understand anyone and having someone completely trying to I mean he didn't even let me sleep so I was like out of sleep for three days already because he would keep calling me at night and I need to talk to you oh really is that what you want <laughs> and even if I turned off my phone like it was it was strange you know they have this they have this uh, very intrinsic malicious hold onto you yep. so yeah I know what you're yeah. talking about. Well, good for you for getting out. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And uh, that takes a lot of strength to do that. Uh, and yeah, well, and I'm not surprised you're a pretty strong woman. So <laughs> thanks. I can tell. So, yeah, but even so, it's, it's energetically effortful. I think it was, to be honest, it was more, I didn't have anyone to talk to by this time. Uh, my friends obviously were a completely different time zone. I had I didn't speak the same language with any person I met there. And obviously you don't meet people and be like, ah, so I'm going through this really weird thing. So that's not right. what I do. I think it was more that whole thing that I was alone traveling and a lot of different things happened there too. You know, like when you travel solo, there's always something going on that you have to take care of. 
So I think it was all at the same time having to deal with all of those different things that made me be like, oh, this is, this is shit. <laughs> but I got through and I climbed glaciers and I, and I slept on ice and I, I've seen a lot of stars and full moons and animals. And uh, I climbed Machu Picchu in six, six days and uh, walked 3000 kilometers in eight months. So I guess wow. I got, I think I walked out of it quite literally. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for you. Thanks. Good for you. Good for you. So tell me about this peacemaking. Uh, how, uh, yeah, what is it? What did you do? And how did you get into that? So I started my professional career as a lawyer, trial lawyer, in 1977. And I started the practice of law in 78. I worked for a judge for a year and then went into private practice. And I was groomed by the senior lawyers in my firm to be a big time trial lawyer. And that's what I ended up doing, trying really big, big money, complicated, difficult cases in federal court and state court. And I did that for a long time. In my mid thirties, I decided to take up the martial arts. And so I started training and I was really bad at it for a long time. Horrible, because because I have I was born I was born with a lot of deficits, physical deficits, and so martial arts was great for me because it really forced me to overcome some of my problems. And but eventually, I became a black belt. I was awarded my first degree, and then I got my second degree. And at that point in time, my teacher called me in and said, "I'm not teaching you anymore because." You're full of yourself. You're an asshole. You're a lawyer. You know, now you're a second degree. For you, a guy, a fair fight is five guys with knives and you unarmed. Because that's how I've trained you. He said, but you're too, this is not good for you. So you go learn Tai Chi. Oh. And when you've mastered Tai Chi, you come back. Well, of course, you never mastered Tai Chi. <laughs> so I took up this. This is in the early 90s. I took up the study of Tai Chi. And Tai Chi has two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are the stronger you are. And the second paradox is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful, which was just totally the opposite of how I saw myself as a hardcore trial lawyer, black belt, take, take no prisoners, you know. And as I practiced Tai Chi, this paradox started to seep into me till one day I was in the courtroom cross-examining somebody and the thought came to me, what the hell am I doing in here? So after that trial, I had a river trip planned with a bunch of friends and we went up to Idaho uh, in the Western US and, and had a whitewater trip planned. And I spent 10 days on my raft all by myself because uh, I've done a lot of whitewater and thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer. And at the end of the week, at the end of the trip, I'd only served like five people out of hundreds and hundreds of cases. And I said to myself, you know, I don't want to go 40 years or 50 years as a lawyer and only help 15 or 20 people. That's not what my calling is. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And I came back into town and I live in the mountains, uh, the Sierra, central Sierra Nevada. And I was driving down off, of, off the mountains, into, down into the valley to my office. And I heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And it was being offered at the West Coast 
Mennonite, U.S., United States West Coast Mennonite University, Fresno Pacific. And the Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches, along with the Quakers and the Anabaptists and Mennonite Brethren. And so I wasn't a person of faith, but it caught my eye. And I, to make a long story short, I signed up. I was applied and was admitted. And, and here I'm in my basically my late 40s, and I find myself being a full-time graduate student, a full-time trial lawyer, and a three-quarters-time law professor teaching at our local law school. And that was the end of my first marriage. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it was just too much. But it really changed me. I mean, my mentors taught me so much about the nature of human conflict. And it got that. So I got into neuroscience and studying neuroscience, which in those days was brand new. I mean, relatively new compared to what it is today. And I be, started becoming really intrigued as I studied all these conflicts. I became really intrigued about what does it really take to bring peace to the room? And it all starts in our human brains. All peace and conflict starts in the brain and then ends in the brain. So that's got me focused on neuroscience and, and what's going on. And I started looking at all these different conflicts from a, neuro, a neuroscientific perspective to understand why, for example, there are these ideological conflicts or intractable conflicts around beliefs. And it's very, I mean, once you understand what's going on in the brain, it, it makes a lot of sense. And then I did something that I don't think anybody else that I know of is done. And that is I started taking all this science and started thinking about what are the practical applications of this? How can I take this knowledge and actually use it to help people who'd rather shoot each other with AK-47s actually have a conversation and start trying to solve their problems? And so that's how it all originated. And, and I had a lot of talks with my law partners about what to do with all of this. They were pretty pissed at me because I was the second largest money earner in the firm. And the idea of their trial dog becoming a peacemaker made no sense to them. So finally, in November of 2000, almost 11, uh, 21 years ago, uh, I left the practice and started my own peacemaking practice. And it was the best decision I ever made. Don't make nearly as much money, but I don't care. I. So I'll just say that, so, so for the next 10 years, I mediated cases. I was called into all kinds of different conflicts, none of them international, but, but fairly intense business and personal conflicts of all different kinds, and really got a lot of experience seeing this human conflict over and over again. And as I became research neuroscience and saw more and more, it all became very clear to me what was going on. And that led to a colleague of mine calling me in August of 2009, reading a letter from me from a, a woman who was serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which at that time happened to be about an hour and a half from where I live. And she basically was asking if we would come in and train the lifers, women who are serving life sentences, murderers, to be peacemakers. And we said yes. And it took us six months to get permission from the prison authorities to go in and teach. We started with 17 women in March of 2010 and that's how the Prison of Peace Project started. And today we're in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 14 prisons in Greece. And we've got a project starting in Kenya and Nairobi and also in Italy. And we get calls all the time from, of course, COVID's 
sort of stop things for now, but but we basically have gone built a curriculum to teach inmates, especially people who are going to be there for their lives, how to de-escalate violent situations quickly and efficiently and stop the violence on the yards. And every prison we've gone into, that's exactly what we've done. Wow. And so that was pretty, that, so that took up my time, a lot of my time up until two years ago. And then I started backing away a little bit from it because I was now in the process of training trainers. And then of course, COVID hit you know, March and that was the end of all our prison work. So through all of this, I've seen so many thousands of conflicts that I began to see the same patterns repeat themselves over and over and over again. And I also learned that the same interventions work over and over and over again. But what was really sad was that looking at people like me, professional people, professionally trained, typically with a terminal degree, either a law degree or a psychology PhD or something like that, that people just didn't have the skills to deal with intense conflict. They could mediate a case if it wasn't too tough. But if people were tense and angry and pissed off, that was way, way beyond their skills. In fact, I just did a media, it was the first in-person mediation I've done all year and I did it three weeks ago. And one of the lawyers is also a mediator. I actually trained him as a mediator. And he said, I don't know what you did. I could have never mediated this case the way you did it. And I would have never gotten this result. I mean, he was really quite happy. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. And the idea of peacemaking is to help people make the best decisions they can make with the available information. And they're making these decisions under high uncertainty, high risk, ambiguity, and complexity. And typically there's a lot at stake. And I don't have an outcome. I don't have a dog in the fight when it comes to what their decision is. They can either continue warring or litigating in court or fighting, they can walk away and divorce if they have to do that, whatever kind of, whether it's a marital divorce or a business divorce or some other kind of divorce, or they can agree to solve their problems in a way that makes sense to them. And in my work, I say, don't ever compromise. Right. <clears throat> there is no need, there's no need to compromise. And so that's that's the work and the, the work of the peacemakers to sit there and facilitate this process that de-escalates people and then puts them into a place where they can normally solve the problems on their own with a little bit of help from somebody like me. I love that. I love that. And before I want to stretch out a little bit how these processes can look like, I want to actually talk about that after the break, but I want to know while you were talking about, I had this picture in front of me, because unfortunately in 2020 that bubbled up way too often of police brutality, especially between yes. uh, white cops and black men, for example, Pretty or awful. teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that be a solution to train police officers? Of course. It's, it's not only a solution, it's a require, it's the, the training standards are called post standards, police officer standards training. And, and these are national standards that are applied to every single accredited law enforcement agency in the United States. Right. And it's also, and it also is required as part of the curriculum for any police academy. So anybody going through basic law enforcement training at a police academy is required to learn, supposedly learn how to do this stuff. But their training is, Absolutely crappy. 
it's the worst training you can possibly imagine because the people that are teaching it are police officers and they've never been properly trained in how to de-escalate. And so they don't, and the second thing is that most people get into law enforcement because they like the macho image of being the, you know, the tough guy and they're behind the badge and they got the gun and it's all awful and they can go ahead and crush people if they want it for the most part with impunity. And of course the results of what we see, which is incredible brutality, way too, way too much brutality against people of color. Yeah. And, and I approached law enforcement about, gee, you know, there's a better way to do this. Zero interest. And I have students of mine who are in law enforcement who they laugh and they say, I just had to go through a de-escalation training. And they say, it was just total crap. It was total, it was beyond idiocy. And I said, well, maybe you ought to look at the work of Doug Nolan. And they got the same response. I did, no, no, we're going to do it our way. So the fundamental problem is that there's a cultural bias in law enforcement against really learning skills that could prevent a lot of the abuse that we see. There's just a fundamental bias against it. And until that bias is dealt with or addressed, then law enforcement is not going to be interested in learning the modern skills of de-escalation and peacemaking that are available that could save lives and really protect the officers in in really powerful ways. Yeah. Um, but so far, so far, there's no interest in it. Why do you think that is? I think it's I think it's cultural. I think that people get into people get into police work usually for good reasons. They want to serve. But you get into police work and all you're dealing with is negativity, especially if you're a urban cop and you're dealing with lots of horrible stuff every day. It's just horrible, 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 horrible. And you eventually it doesn't take long to get cynical and to believe that every black man is potentially dangerous. Every Latinx man is dangerous or a gangbanger. And pretty much it's it's it feels like war. And if you're not a cop, then you're the enemy. And that is what happens. And so then so you treat people, you dehumanize them, you morally disengage as a police officer. Not all, of course, not all police officers this way. There are many really good police officers. But for a certain group, they morally disengage and their already racist tendencies tend to blossom. <coughs> and now we have these abuses that are awful and terrible. What do you and, think is and, the difference? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and, and breaking that takes leadership. Right. But it takes political leadership and it takes internal leadership, police leadership. Yeah. And and they don't want to, and the lead, political leadership does not have the will to, to change things because oftentimes the unions are so powerful that they want to protect cops and against everything. And, you know, the police leadership have they came up as policemen i mean they don't have a motivation for changing anything doing anything radical some do i mean i'm making some pretty broad statements here and it's not true of everybody and and i would say that 95 of all all the police officers at least in the united states are upstanding powerful well-meaning people they could use the training but it's only about five percent of them that are bad apples. And, but as I teach in my leadership work, I say, you know, all it takes is one bad apple in the barrel before the rest of the barrel becomes rotten. Yeah. And I don't and, know who it was who said like, there are just some, some 
industry some occasions where you can't have uh, occupations where you can't have bad apples like you can't have one bad pilot who just crashes every single flight into the freaking mountains you know like it's just like oh our our pilots like to land on the ocean or sometimes in the mountain maybe well i don't know i'm a pilot i'm not sure using a pilot analogy yeah the best thing your parachute right you're right it's it's easier it's easier to protect the bad apple than it is to discipline them and keep kick, kick them out. Yes. And, and we've and seen it with the case of Brianna Taylor. You know? Right now? Like the case of Brianna Taylor. I mean, how long did it even take to get it in front of a court? And then they didn't do shit. They protected the property, but not her. Like right. Well, yeah. So that goes to that raises a whole bunch of other issues about our right. <laughs> Yeah. Court system. And, and, and yes. I think people expect too much, uh, at least in the United States. Now I'm going to speak as a law professor and a lawyer there that what people expect of the court system is a form of justice that does not exist. Right. The law only guarantees one form of justice, and that's really called equal protection. It's the opportunity to be notified that there's a proceeding against you and giving you an opportunity to be heard. That's, the, that's called procedural justice. And that's the only kind of justice that our court system really tries to guarantee. And most of the time, it's pretty good about it. But substantive justice, the idea that there's going to be a fair result, not even, they don't even, the courts don't even attempt to promise substantive justice. And so, um, and this is something that people don't realize is that yeah. our court system is not about substantive justice. It's about procedural justice. Follow the procedures and the theory is that over thousands of cases, everything will even out. But in particularly egregious cases, mm. you can get injustices occurring yeah. and they will stand if there's no violation of the rule of law. And that, that happens. And people don't people who are not lawyers and many lawyers don't understand that this basic principle of jurisprudence. Yeah. You're listening to Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Monique. We'll be right back after these messages. But in the meantime, find more resources at EfficiencyOnDemand.com. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Monique. If you want to learn more about time management, impactful leadership, mindset mastery, and energy efficiency, then you can now order my new book, the Time Method, and a Bullshit Guide to Creating an Abundance of Time. Just go to www.thetimemethod.com or you can click the link in the show notes below. And please, I would love for you if you can share, rate, and review this podcast so many other people can find and benefit from it too. Thanks for tuning in. I really love to have you here. You're listening to Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Monique. I wonder sometimes, you know, where, maybe maybe that's the wrong stuff. What's the difference like between countries like the US and countries like Germany or um, the Netherlands or Australia where mm -hmm. like they, look, we also have a, like, let's just say Germany, because I'm from Germany, so I know more about that than maybe the Australia or Netherlands. But we have, a, we have like, one of the most horrific histories 
about race, the Holocaust, sure. Hitler, and it's mm. not that long ago. Let's just make sure we don't right. we don't think that's been like four hundred years ago. No, it's just yeah. been like eighty. Eighty eighty years ago. Yeah. So it's it's literally like not that long ago. My grandparents still lived like they lived through the Second World War. They lived through like Stasi. They lived through all like Gestapo, everything. They've been kids. My parents lived through the GDR and through an actual socialist communist country, not like what current Americans are afraid of when 3% taxes over $400,000 of income are raised. That's not communist. And free healthcare is also not socialist, but no worries. <laughs> we get there. But the thing is, Let's not get started on that. <laughs> I agree with you, but let's not get started on it. <laughs> I'm like, oh. but here's the thing. I wonder sometimes. So here, I I want to make sure people understand. Don't understand it wrong. We do have police brutality in Germany. We do, and the cases are so much less. Like I think between 1996, when it had, when reporting had started, and 2000 and. 19 or 18 when the last reporting was like something like this okay so that's a lot of that's a lot of years 1996 to 2018 or 19 there was a reported 296 police brutality shootings against people of color or any other ethnic ethnicity other than white so and it, since it's Germany, it all has to be reported and documented and whatever. And yes, are there other cases outside of that? I bet. There are surely more numbers, but it's 296 in all of these years. And and in America, sometimes you have, what, 296 in a week or maybe right. in a month? What's the, what's, the, what's the difference? Yes. Okay. First of all, Germany and, and most all of Europe excluding the United Kingdom and Ireland, run on a very different different system, legal system. It's called a civil system, as opposed to the Anglo-American system. It's a very it's a, it's based on Napoleonic code and it's 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 a very, very, very different kind of system. It works. It's just different. And the second, so one, you've got a different kind of system. Two when you look at a country like Germany, which is in Europe is a large country, but when you compare it to the United States, it's tiny. It's a minuscule, I mean, compared to the United States. How many people are in, what's the population of Germany? 83 million. 80 million. I was gonna say 80 million, compared to 370 million in the United States, four times larger. And the United States is geographically and politically extraordinarily diverse. Germany has always had a strong, well, modern Germany, let's call it that, because it's been two, two, but about 200 years since Germany unified. But it's always, since unification, it's always had a fairly strong central government and it's a federal government. So you've got German states, but the central government has much more control over what happens in the country. It's not true in the United States. We have a federal system, but each state has our constitution says that powers that aren't delegated to Congress by this constitution are reserved to the states. So 
the theory of our constitutional law is that the federal government has power and jurisdiction over certain things. Everything else goes to the states. Now we have 50 states and they're just about as diverse and varied as you can possibly be. So in Alabama, for example, you know, the Southern states that were part of the Confederacy where racism has always been obviously an offspring off of slavery, there has never been a strong political motivation to create equal opportunity and to provide for equal rights. And a black person or an African-American person in the South is much, much more likely to be subject to police brutality than say in California. It'll still happen in California, but, but, but the, because of the culture and the history of that state or those states where black people were slaves and then they were freed, but they were never really free, it's, a cult, it's culture. And in Ger Germany, up until, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it was pretty, pretty white. And, I mean, and now recently immigrants have been coming into the EU from all over the world. And I was just reading an article today about that's creating a lot of problems in the EU and Germany in particular. But up until that time, people were pretty homogenous. And so the likelihood of having a brutality as a, as a result of racial difference was much lower than in the United States. And the, and the third thing is that the German culture, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're German, German expatriate, but you get it. It's a very, it's a, it's a very rule abiding country uh, where things are very organized, kind of, it's an engineering mindset, if you will, where, you know, the, the Autobahns work a certain way and the trains run on time and stuff happens, right? It's very, very disciplined. And, the, and that's made in Germany is so quality. Yes, exactly. Yep. Well, that mindset, that mindset makes for people who get into government already have a cultural mindset of following the rules because mm. it's the most efficient way to get things done. Mm. And that mindset does not exist in the United States. Nothing like in Germany. There yeah. are places in the United States where there's a lot of discipline, but nothing like Germany. Yeah, and so, so the rule, so the culture in the United States is going to vary a lot depending upon what state you're in and even in where and what state you are in. And, you know, we have a different legal system. We have an extraordinarily diverse population. And I mean, our country started that way. We started with slavery. And so we've always had Native Americans. We've always had black people. We've always had Hispanic people here, you know. Uh, you know, So this country was, the Republicans have this dreamy idea that we were always white. No, we were, well, this country has never been white, <laughs> you know. And, and, and you know, I, I listened to Sorry to tell you that Europeans came over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People come over in the in the 15th century and they're all they're escaping religious persecution primarily in Britain and they're white Europeans. Yep. And they were not the first people here. And nope. and so but we had it there's all this diversity and the white people took yeah. over yeah. and and us, you know this idea of exceptionalism which is total BS took hold and the idea that we're better than everybody else took hold which is total BS. And it just led itself to this racist mentality that in some mm. pockets of the United States still prevail. And there is no there is no institutional will to get rid of it. Yeah. In fact, to the contrary. I also and, think and so that, it maybe and that that's just like 
I mean, people don't know if they didn't live in Germany. And I have I have also German friends who, who don't agree, which is fine. But I think the other difference is in what you said, like, I totally believe, but Germany is a very diverse country. It is now. Also, it has been before the reunion. And we had a lot of Turkish, Lebanese and other people from like Arab countries moving already mm -hmm. in the in the 40s 50s especially so the first the first uh, immigrants for, or like people that just moved basically across the ocean that we had especially like many turkish people who moved to germany were in the 40s 40s 50s and I have many friends, many Turkish friends who are second or third immigration, basically children, yeah, in Germany. And they have both uh, Turkish and German passports because by this time they were still But able to choose. Here's and the difference, though. Big difference. These people immigrated in the last, let's say, 60, 50 to 60 to 70 years. In the United States, yeah. the... the The, the um, let's just take African-Americans, for example. They've been here for hundreds of years. Yeah. And, and they did or, not come and they yeah. did not come here voluntarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand. And so it's a very different dynamic. Yeah. And, and that and that's the difference. And, and because they were the African-Americans were ripped out of their homes from Africa and, and enslaved over here in it, the Middle East. I mean, uh, yeah, the 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 Middle East people enslaved Africans too. So it wasn't just the Western world that got the benefit, if you want to call it that, of the slaves. The, they, they have always been a subculture and a subspecies. I don't want to use that word, but it's, they've always been oppressed. That's the best way to put it. Always been oppressed. Yeah. And it, it, from, the, from long before our country was ever formed, this existed. And that's I mean, that's a that's that's a just yeah, not that's a cultural mindset that, yeah, yeah. that it's okay to shoot these people. Yeah. It's not okay. But for certain yeah. certain mentalities, that's what they think. Yeah. And I don't think the Europeans really had that problem. Slavery did not exist in Europe. Uh, it probably well, it, did, but not it, on it actually did uh, with Irish people. Um Okay. So But Irish and, people one Irish people other than they they talk funny and they drink different right let's not make this a reason to slave people <laughs> so please they, but, but they um, you know they can they can they, they it's not so obvious it's not no, i know I, what I you mean, mean, I remember. but i also see i also think a lot of european people don't even know a lot of european people don't even know that irish have been slaved like as yeah. part of the like viking group for example like very northern right. irish people and also i think what what happens a lot in europe is we didn't slave on our crowns we just ventured out and then for example the english they just went all over australia killed most of the natives right. and then inherited right. australia and right. same with right. india right and i mean germans and, and the dutch we went all over africa so it's like all you right. know like we just we just populated and <laughs> inherited all of the other countries so it's not i don't that's know right. if that's any better To be honest. Well, I'm not saying it is any better, but but if we're looking at the specific issue, why is there police brutality in the United States and how yeah. come it's not being addressed? Yeah. And what, what what makes it different from Germany? You can see that there 
are many significant differences between the history of the United States and the history of Germany yeah. or the history of the European Union that would tend to lead to more kinds of problems. Yeah. More for all these different reasons. And from right. a peacemaker's perspective, you look at this and you, you know, you think, well, this is all preventable, and it is, except that you can't you can't bring people to the table unless they want to come to the table and talk and solve a problem. Right. And it's all and here's the, what I've learned in my work is it's all about power position and privilege. Most people would rather protect their power position and privilege than come to the negotiating table with whom they consider to be an inferior and negotiate away some of their power position and privilege in order to have peace. Most people will not do that. They will rather they'd rather use their power position and privilege to keep themselves in that place of power position and privilege than give any of it up. Isn't that, and most of the, that's nuts most of to you, me. Well, like, it's nuts to you, but take it from a perspective of somebody who's been living in a county in the South for 400 years and went through the Civil War and, and great, 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 great grandfather was a slave owner. And now they are the old wealthy family in Alabama, white family. And they basically have been controlling things for 400 years. Why would you expect them to voluntarily give up their power to the majority of the black people who are now in the majority there? Because they killed them. I would, you know, Pardon like me? I'm <laughs> like in my, in my head, maybe my head works really different in my head. If I was now a child of them, I would ask my parents, look, you don't have to give it up all, but how about, how about you start somewhere? Well, understand Monique, you, you're, there are people like you, there are young people like you in the United States, but most of the young people that grow up in these rural areas are, they drink the Kool-Aid because that's all they know. And that's you layer onto that. You, yeah, it is. And you layer onto that the, the fundamentalism, uh, the Christian fundamentalism that runs through these parts of the country that tell people how to believe. And, and they, they're not taught how to think for themselves. Their, their whole education is all about focusing on protecting cultural beliefs. Yeah. And it, just, it just perpetuates itself over and over again. Right. But, you know, I mean, you're unusual in that, you know, you're a world traveler. You've been through a lot. You had a lot of life experience and you have perspectives that most people your age don't have. Very few people of your age in the United States would have your perspectives. You find them in the urban areas on the coasts and in the in Chicago and places like that. But outside of the big urban areas, you won't find people that have your kind of attitudes. Yeah. It's very different, very provincial. Maybe I should create a retreat for people like that to come and get their brain unwashed. <laughs> you know, well, I wish it were that easy. Here, let me. Let, we should talk about beliefs for a second because, I, you know, this is a this is a big deal. But here's how this is what happens in our brains. First of all, beliefs are nothing more than decision-making shortcuts. So we form a belief in order not to have to think about something. Yeah. So now here's the thing that's really crazy about our brain. So beliefs are really good. We couldn't get along if we didn't have beliefs because there are a lot of things we don't have to think about and we have to waste brain power on to make decisions every day. We know the sun's going to rise, you know? So that's a belief grounded in science, but still it's a belief and we don't have to think about it anymore. 
Unless you believe in flat earth, it may not. Unless rise. you're a flat earth person. And then and then they believe they and they'll come up with all kinds of justifications and excuses why the earth it is made flat and Trump it's not round. Of the edge. All right. Well, here's the thing. Let's take the flat earth society, you know, and, and yeah. there is such a thing as the flat earth society. Sure. If you could, here's what happens in our brains. If you take a flat earther <laughs> and you provide them with absolutely uncontrovertible truth uh, facts, they're uncontrovertible that the earth is not flat, it's round, and it circles around the sun. The sun doesn't circle around the earth. What will happen in their brains is that they will release dopamine in a part of the brain called the striatum, primarily the a place called the caudate and another, another place called the nucleus accumbens. They will release this dopamine to reinforce their beliefs against the true but contradictory facts. We are hardwired to hold on to our beliefs against contrary evidence. And there's, an, uh, there's a re reason why, that, why we evolved this way. Because prior to the advent of modern society, knowledge was very hard to come by. It came yeah. through experience and it came through, it was passed on from parent to child. And the, the, this knowledge was essential for survival. So if we were if we were able to change our survival beliefs quickly, those who those who were able to change their beliefs quickly died because they lost the knowledge that required them to survive. So only the people who were able to be stubborn and hold on to their beliefs were the ones that survived to pass their genes onto us. And so now we have brains that have this weird attribute that creates these intense beliefs. And we have a mechanism for holding on to those beliefs that takes a serious, a serious disturbance in order to change the beliefs. I mean, this is why you see 70 million people voted for Donald Trump in, in our, just, our, just you know, a few weeks ago, because they have a belief structure that's not tethered to reality, but it doesn't matter. It's a belief structure. And every right. time, Every time they hear somebody argue why their belief structure is not tethered to reality, they just dig in deeper. They release dopamine to feel good about their beliefs. And when you can just see this happening. You see these protests, these people have conversations with these people. They're just, you can, you, it, they are impossible to persuade. And we shouldn't even try. We shouldn't yeah, even try. I would not. And, but there are other ways you can get to them. And there are other ways you can have conversations with them that work with their brains, not against their brains. And that's the work of the peacemakers to understand, okay, what are those things? How do we do that? And uh, okay. So, and there, there are things we can do. All right, all right, let's talk about that. Okay. All right, politically polarized people. <laughs> How do you have a conversation with a politically polarized? Okay, so first, I think, okay. So first of all, I want to say that I think America right now is in a position where I don't even I don't even know if it really matters what is actually going on. People are just they've as you just said they've chose a position and they're not getting away from it. And no matter right? Mm -hmm. And so you can come with like this whole experience and knowledge and life wisdom and they're like that is not the truth false fake news 
Raising taxes is socialist. And no, communist. Right. Sorry, that's the communist part. Free healthcare right. is socialist. Well, in my, may I just say that? Because it's really, it's laying on my heart heavy. <laughs> if you think free healthcare is socialist and that's why you don't want it, and you think nobody else but you should have free healthcare, then, my dear friend listening, you are an asshole. So let, we should look at history to understand why people say that. There have been many, many <laughs> movements in the United States to try to provide health care for all, to follow a system that more aligned with, with what we see in Europe. Okay, and before you, we dive into that, Doc, may I just say something to, before, <laughs> because that's going to be important. Americans, and I just made a post about that because I'm, I make a lot of posts about that. Americans only look at America. Okay, but I'm giving it. I'm 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 looking, giving you a, a broader perspective. How this came about? Why did this belief structure come about? Right. That universal healthcare is socialistic. It came right. about because 50 years ago, the American Medical Association resisted. Well, the American Medical Association was formed in the 19th century to give doc to professionalize medicine and doctors, mm -hmm. even though, you know, medicine was very archaic and brutal back then, it, and in some cases, it still is. But the AMA had always been about protecting the turf of, of physicians. It, it was a political action committee in, in the earliest years. And whenever the government talked about socializing medicine or making medicine a single payer or providing health care for all, the AMA went crazy because it had so many of its members were making a lot of money as, especially in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, making money as medical specialists that off the insurance stuff, that they were afraid that if it became government health care, that their constituents would make a lot less money. Sure. And so they started they started raising the flag. And this all started in the 50s. I remember this as a kid. They were saying, you know, this is communistic. Universal health care is communism. It's not communism. But they were saying that they were labeling it with these negative things in order to get the politicians to leave medicine alone to protect right. their constituency, their stakeholders. And then over the years, it dribbled down into the consciousness of people who don't know any better. And so now everybody, you know, people who are know-nothings, they'll say, well, yeah, universal healthcare is communistic. It's not, I agree, completely agree with you. And, and we do need to change our system here. Right. But, the, and what but I'm understand that this all originated, <laughs> it originated from a political motivation to protect Lobby a it. stakeholder group. Yeah. And, you know, the, but the thing is, what I'm saying was like Americans only look at themselves if they would look outside into the world. And if oh, they would compare. <laughs> you're right. If, I agree with you completely. Look, but you're asking. There are so many countries who provide. You're too smart. You're, you're, you're smarter than the average bear here in the United States. But, you, you know, the, so and I mean, we are trying to show them. Right. We're trying to tell them. And I mean, for example. Didn't I just tell you? You can't tell. You can't give people the facts. Yeah, you're right. They, right. they are. They All are right. neurologically and physiologically. <laughs> it, it's, they're incapable All of right. listening to the facts, especially. Y'all should pay a, a million degree. dollars for a COVID test. Then please be happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I mean, we can get off on that. What I think is going to happen. Sounds not this week. We got two preliminary reports from Moderna and Pfizer, both both showing pretty pretty high effectiveness for their vaccines. Of course, there's a huge distribution problem, manufacturing and distribution problem, which is going to be just a nightmare in 2021. But even, even so, 
I'll bet you that less than 45% of the people in the United States get vaccinated. You know why? It will cost too much money. <laughs> no, the government's going to, the government is already committed to paying Pfizer a half a billion, no, a half a trillion dollars oh. for 300 and 500, 500,000 doses that oh, can dose everybody in the United States plus some. And it's going to be free to everybody in the United States. But that's but socialist be- stuck. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Okay. It's going to be free to everybody. You're not going to have to pay for a COVID vaccine. <laughs> but, but okay. Now I'm going to be really mean because I'm going to be jealous of a cut. Is it free for every white buddy or is it free for every, 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 every human being in the United States will, it has, will have access to free vaccination. Well, we eventually. waited that one. Okay. So let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the, how we can talk to politically around people. Yeah. A polarized. All right. So the so the so the the number one rule in listening to and talking to or being with a politically polarized person is you is you're not going to talk. You got to listen, and that can be really hard because people are going to say some things that are really screwball and really get you upset. But there are four questions, and if you ask these four questions and listen carefully, you actually can have a pretty good conversation. You're going to write this down. Question number one. Tell me. Uh, about your life experiences that led you to the beliefs that you have today? Sorry. Yeah. Tell I'm me not- about your life experiences because I know I'm not going to be able to change your beliefs, but I want to find out how you your beliefs were formed. What is it in your life that caused you to believe what you do today? I love that one. And what's going to be really amazing when you ask that question that asks them to tell a story and you listen to their story. And more often than not, you're going to find out that there you do have things in common mm. and you have more in common than you have indifference. Yep. So the second question you ask is how do your beliefs help you in your everyday decision-making? Get them to think about because beliefs are decision-making tools, right? How do your beliefs help you every day? And what you'll draw out of them without asking any more questions is that they'll have a realization that their beliefs might serve them, but their beliefs also might not serve them. Mm-hmm. I don't have to. I don't have to think about it. All right. So one of the ways the beliefs serve you is that you don't have to put any effort out into thinking about how the world works because it's just much easier to have a belief. Yeah. Okay. Then the third question that I ask is, how do you deal with people who have different beliefs than you do? And the typical answer you're going to get right away is a snarky one. I just shoot them. Of course they don't. That that's what people will say. And they're being, you know, they're being that's stupid. But, but I'll say, but no, really, come on. You don't, you're not going to go out and shoot somebody just because they have a different belief from you. How do you really, and in your everyday life, you run across people who have different beliefs from you, what do you do? And that's always an interesting answer because they haven't really thought about it before. And then the last question you ask is, you know, we live in this very complex society. How should our society, I'm talking about America now, the United States, how should our society manage all of these different beliefs that are radically opposed to each other. How should we manage that? To make sure that everybody's, should everybody be treated fairly or only certain people be treated fairly? I mean, what do you think? And when they think about it, at first their first reaction is gonna be protect my power, position and privilege, right? And, and, but then as they think about it, they well, no, I, probably everybody ought to, we ought to, it ought to be fair to everybody. That's sort of how our, what our culture is about. 
And you, it softens them. Their beliefs soften. You're not going to change their belief. But what you're going to do is open up their head and get them to get some insights about themselves that will soften them to not never agree, but to accept the fact that people can have radically different beliefs and still like each other and still get along and still talk to each other, even though they have very, very different beliefs. Mm. And, and the second thing it does when you have this conversation is it will teach people that they're being manipulated by the politicians, which is exactly what's happening. Right. They're being manipulated and they're being manipulated by the media who's only interested in one thing and that's making money. And so some of these people, when you have this conversation, will begin to see the manipulation Mm. and they won't change their beliefs, but they'll think a little bit more about what's going on. And they Mm -hmm. won't be so not necessarily as blind as they would be if you didn't ask these four questions. So that's how you have the conversation with the political, politically polarized. Right. And, and your agenda is not to change anybody's mind. Your, your agenda is not to debate. Your agenda is not to persuade. It's to get the other person, the person who's politically different than you, to open up and start talking about things they probably never talked about before, never thought about. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the way of the peacemaker. <laughs> so I have two questions on that. First of all, I just had a solo episode last week that we published as our anniversary episode. And I talked about how I don't watch TV and news anymore for seven years now because of the Mm -hmm. whole brainwashing. And I'm very much into putting my attention into things that I choose. So I'm keeping my Mm -hmm. space as clean as possible. Now, there are people out there that I've read I mean, obviously, like Facebook and social media and whatever, there is a lot of, like, I don't even need the news. There's a lot of bullshit coming in. But I'm also very aware of where it comes from, who's talking about this, you know, all of these things. And so people say, like, if you don't know what's going on in the news, how can you make up your mind? Well, I'm, as you just mentioned, thanks for that. I'm very smart. I don't need Fox News to tell me their particular angle of what's going on in the world. And as I mentioned that, and I know like a lot of Americans get offended by that, but they don't look beyond the border. If I ask them, so what's going on in Myanmar? No one knows. Do you know? I mean, you know, but you know. I know, know, but I study international (laughs) Exactly, you know. And so even, or like when I asked them about Saudi Arabia, nope. When I asked them about Nigeria and the genocide of police brutality there, what do you mean? So, you know, there's a lot of things that they right. have no idea about. Brexit. What's Brexit? Well, okay. Right. So, so then my question comes. So I have, I have a little bit of a, I previously was like, you know what? I listen to everyone. I'm just gonna, as you said, I ask questions. I let them talk and let's see if they can think for themselves. I'm not sure if these days that's a good idea. And there are just some beliefs where, I don't even want to give those beliefs a platform, nor would I ever agree to disagree. So, for example, plain out racism and homophobia, for example, has just no... There, I don't even want to give a platform that anymore. I've heard all of their reasons and all of their... I've so, listened to all, you know? So what so would you do that? So there, there is a difference in perspective here. 
And I would t tell you, you're absolutely right. You don't need to listen to that stuff. And if it offends you, you should not listen to it. And you shouldn't deal with it. But I'm a person that walks into conflict, figuring out how to get people who are, have these entrenched beliefs, these intractable beliefs, how to get them to soften enough to be able to solve a problem, for example. So I'm not so interested in their beliefs as I am in getting them to think about what the implications of their beliefs are. Because as a peacemaker, that's what I'm paid to do. Right. You're not being paid to do what I do. You have the luxury of being able to, I won't say luxury, but I mean, you have the ability sure. because of the work that you do as an advocate and an activist to be able to, to, be able to say, I'm just not gonna tolerate this crap. I don't have that. I don't, if I'm called into a conflict, for example, I don't have that luxury. Mm. I have to work with what I've got. And my job is to try to get people to make good decisions and to think about the implications of their beliefs, for example, mm. without challenging them directly, because I need to engage them. My job is to engage and decide. Mm -hmm. And so they can have totally repugnant beliefs to me, but that's not my call. And it's yeah. not my place to call out my own beliefs. In fact, I'm called a neutral for a reason. I'm, I'm neutral on all of these things. Yeah. I'm not neutral inside myself because my beliefs are very much aligned with yours. But working with people who have beliefs that are radically different and repugnant to me, when I'm a peacemaker, I have to, my beliefs aren't important. Right. What's important is can I help these people make a good decision, resolve whatever problems, disputes, conflicts they have, and hopefully prevent it from happening again. Right. And that is, so that's a, it's a different role. Yeah. But and I so think I look at, sorry, good. I was just going to say, when I look at, the, so when I look at these kinds of problems, like how do you have a conversation with politically polarized, I come at it from that perspective, the perspective of a problem solver. How do mm -hmm. I help people? How do I deescalate people, calm them down and then work through whatever problems are presenting themselves that have created this conflict or dispute and help them figure that out. Right. I think for me, sometimes it's not so much about like, uh, honestly, there's no such a thing as someone can offend me because it's, you know, it's their beliefs they're, they're saying, but it has nothing to do with me. Even if they are thinking or believing something about me, it has nothing to do with me. It's their business, right? So I'm not offended. I couldn't care less. And I also feel like sometimes as people with a bigger platform and advocating for certain like human rights, right? For me, that also has nothing to do with political views. It's a human rights issue. Then I personally do not want to give a platform for any type of behavior, which often comes with these beliefs, right? That could traumatize the people, the very people that I would want to support, right? right? And so that is more like my, that has that has more to do with what I'm trying to do, right? So, so you raise, a, you pose a really difficult ethical question that we, uh, we peacemakers have to deal with, which is, are it, by engaging in evil, let's say, whatever that is. That, there's no good definition of evil. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. So is there, how do we, are we giving a voice to somebody who should not be getting a voice? 
And one of the things we have to be conscious, always aware of is, are we being manipulated? Are we being exploited so that somebody can get, have a, get a platform that they otherwise wouldn't have? And that, that is a constant ethical dilemma that people like me face. Right. And so you just have to be aware of it and, and try to navigate those problems as cleanly as you can. And, and oftentimes it's not clean. And oftentimes you have to make tough calls about what's more important. You know, is it, is it more important to get this problem solved or is it more important to make sure that this person doesn't have a voice or this platform is not encouraged or, or uh, validated in any way? So mm. it's very, very tough. Those yeah. are the problems we you're right. It's, it's, it's tough. And when you're a peacemaker, you don't, you, you don't have the luxury of being able to reject somebody or not give them a platform because you're being called in to solve a problem, help people solve a problem. So you have to take a, a very nuanced stance on this. Yeah. It's tough, but that's it what is. makes it interesting. <laughs> also. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I remember, so I've been in crisis management for quite some time. I saw that. Mm -hmm. And I remember a lot of these conversations, although they had nothing to do with shooting people or whatever, but more though with uh, DNS servers that would fall flat in India and the CEO of the IT firm didn't like that one at 4 a.m., but <laughs> that was more on the business end to resolve. But um, very interesting indeed, yeah. Doc! I love this conversation. I think uh, I have two more questions, my my end of the conversation questions. Okay. We'll ask you, but maybe you have a question for me before we go. No, I've enjoyed the conversation too. Awesome. You're, you're a very bright, smart young woman doing a good thing. So honored to be in your presence. Thank you so much. Well, um, so my two questions at the end of the conversation, the first one is just to honor the name of the podcast. What does efficiency mean to you? Uh, efficiency is generally using the least amount of energy to get the most done. That's yeah. e essentially what efficiency is. In the most peaceful way. Maybe. Maybe it's not efficient to be peaceful. Oh, Maybe peace is inefficient. So maybe we would give up efficiency to find peace. Or maybe we would say, nope, we don't want peace. We want efficiency. So it's going to vary. It's going to be contextual. I don't think I there are any rules there. <laughs> All right. So last question before we share where people can find you. If someone is in the middle of a hurricane off or chaos or whatever it's going on and they want to make peace what's the three things that you would give them on the way they're in the middle of a huge conflict which which is a big mess first of all if it's beyond their ability and training to handle bring in a professional you find a professional peacemaker mediator to come in and help save you a lot of grief and a lot of money mm. The second thing to do is to recognize that all conflicts are highly emotional. And if you are not an emotionally, you have not been trained to be emotionally competent, and most people have not, then just recognize that you're going to react emotionally to the problem, which is going to shut down your prefrontal cortex, and you're not going to be able to think about it very well. And the third thing is to try to hold, as, and this is the hardest, 
is to try to hold as much compassion as you can for the people you're in conflict with because they're hurting just as badly as you are. And you're all experiencing the same thing, the anger, the frustration, the disrespect, the not being listened to, the not being heard, the sadness, the grief, the abandonment, the not being loved. Everybody in a conflict experiences exactly the same emotions. So to the degree that you can understand that and maybe have compassion for the person in the, in the chaos, do that because it'll help. Yes, that's I love all of that. And I think it's really, really important if we can at least for a minute or five slip into the shoes of the other person that'll help right. to understand and maybe and there is a way to, there is a way to do that. Yep. You know, it's what I teach. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so because you teach that, we want to know where to find you and what they can my find web Go to my website, Doug Noel, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. And from there, you can read about my work. You can contact me through the website, email. You can get onto my YouTube channel and watch all my YouTubes, which there are many. Um, grab copies of my books. I have four books. So, but the but portal for, for this work is dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. Yes, and, and we have it in the show. A lot show of free stuff, a lot of... Yes. Yeah. So it's... And do you find in to our go. tool section also below the how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less. That's my book. book. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. You can find so that. So you, you can get that anywhere. You can get it, you know, Amazon, obviously. If you want to get it, off of my website, and the only reason you would do that is because I offer up a whole bunch of training that goes along with the book and mm -hmm. different resources. So if you just want to get the book, go to Amazon. But if you want to get access to my training at a fairly deep discount, then you would go to dugnoll.com slash d-escalate-the-book. That's right. <laughs> Or and you way take, easier, you go to our episode show notes and the link is down below. There you go. Just go to the show notes and the link will be there. Uh, yeah, and that'll take you to a that'll take you to a page and you can just explore what's on the page and go, you know, see what's important. And I'm always available. So if you go to the website and send an email to me through the website, I will. I'm a, I'm a one man shop. I don't have a huge team behind me. What you see is what you get. I don't have a personal assistant. I don't have a staff. I don't have a team. <gasps> I do all my own work. What? I do my We need to talk about that. <laughs> All right. Doc, thank you so much for coming on the show okay, today. Monique. That was a It's amazing. It's a lot of fun. Yes, totally. And uh, well, have a happy evening with violins. And I'm going to go have a whiskey right now. Thank you very much. Oh, fantastic. We'll do that. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.